said no battery. They did a good pit stop. If you have your Bible with you this morning, Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs chapter number 29. And we won't have uh, a lengthy sermon because I don't have a poem. I do have three points, but I don't have a poem, so we'll, we'll get through it. If you were in Sunday school this morning, hopefully uh, you noticed a little something different about your Sunday school class. If your Sunday school class wasn't different than it normally is, you need to come tell me after church, because I got an issue with your Sunday school teacher I have to take up. For the next three weeks, you're supposed to be talking about your, your, your vision, what you feel like, uh, what you spend some time during the week praying over the next three, well, the next two now, two Sundays, talking about the vision you feel like God would have for this church, what direction you feel like that you would like to see the church go in. So I'm going to help you with that this morning, some ideas. Uh, some things that you can think about. The verse uh, that we're going to look at is in verse number 18, Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18. The Bible just simply says this, Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. If you turned over to John chapter 13 and verse 17, which begins... Uh, the night before the crucifixion, the night in the upper room where Jesus teaches his disciples, there's a lot of new things that you'll find from chapter 13 to chapter 17 in the book of John. That's one night, just a few hours, take up all those chapters there uh, in the Bible, just a few hours before Christ goes to the cross. He, he's having an intense training session with his disciples that night, uh, giving them some details, and he talks about a lot of new things. Why? Because tomorrow something's going to happen, and three days later something even bigger than that's going to happen, and it's going to change the whole world. It's going to change everything that you thought you knew. It's going to change all that law that you've been preached and taught about ever since Moses got it on the mountain that day. So he taught them some new things that night. In verse 17, John chapter 13, the Bible says this, If ye do these things, or no, he said, If ye know these things and do them, happy are ye. So he's not talking about that we find contentment or happiness necessarily in keeping the law. Some people would want to misinterpret that, especially based on this verse where he says, He that keepeth the law, happy is he. Well, Jesus gave them something totally brand new. If you get the context of uh, those chapters there in John, you'll understand that. But he said, If you know these things and you do them, you'll be a happy person. What is that? Well, it starts with knowing why Jesus came. The Bible says that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, how could he do that? How could he save people that are lost? He couldn't do that while he was here on earth. He, he, 
did a lot of miracles and things to prove to people that he was God, that he was who he claimed to be. But after his crucifixion, when he, by his own power, raised his own self from the dead, Revelation chapter 1, the Bible says the only thing that Jesus ever was is dead. Because Jesus is eternally in the present. The only thing that he ever was is dead. He was that, but he's not anymore. And he was only that for a few hours. And that was to purchase us, to pay the price to purchase God's people, those that creation from Adam to whoever the last one ever born will be. That's what Jesus did. He paid the price to redeem us from our sin. So that's his plan and his purpose. It was to die so that he might save lost mankind from their sinfulness and, and bring us back into fellowship with God. That seems too simple for us in 2019 because we like to, to think and we like to be complicated and we like to... You know, just all this wisdom and knowledge and secret stuff and mysteries and deeper, 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 deeper. I'm going to tell you something. You get so deep you won't be able to breathe. And you'll still be just as dumb as you was before you dove down in there. Because God gives us things simply in the Scripture. He does. If you have a copy of the King James Bible, it's written on a fifth grade reading level. So why would God have it interpreted from the Hebrew and the Greek into the English language in, in a format that a fifth grader could read it if you had to have a degree in higher education to understand it? Somebody should have said amen right there. Because none of us that smart. We understand it because one day we got saved in the help of the Holy Spirit. Now when we read it, he tells us what it says. But there's a lot of simple things here. Jesus came to die so that he could save sinners. He was resurrected. That gave him the power over death. And so now he's got the power to give us eternal life. That's been the plan and the purpose from eternity past. It's easy to get caught up in a lot of other stuff, but that's always going to be the main thing. That's always going to be God's plan and God's vision and God's mission is to seek and to save lost people. Now there's a lot of things we can do or, or be a part of or be involved in that will produce that result. But if that's not the result out of whatever it is we're doing, then whatever it is we're doing is just a waste of time. If, uh, if it just makes me feel good, if it just comforts me, if it just strengthens me or encourages me or if it just, you know, whatever it is, if the end result of it at the end of the day is not that it points people to Jesus, it's a waste of time and money. Because that's what God's mission and God's vision is, is to seek and to save that which was lost. And the Bible is very clear here. There's, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time dissecting this one verse. And matter of fact, just the first part of this verse. 
because God doesn't mince his words. He says, where there is no vision, the people perish. That means people die. Well, what does vision mean? I looked it up. It's got a real deep meaning in the Hebrew. Future outlook. That's what all y'all thought it meant, didn't it? Look, vision, being able to see out into the future. When you don't, when you when you start to lose your sight, it's a difficult thing. My my wife's father and brother Hornsby suffer from the same eye problem, and you just have a little bitty narrow window of vision that you can see out of. Right, Brother Roy? Yeah. Her, her dad's is different. He only has center vision. He has no peripheral vision. And his is only in one eye. He told me it was just like looking through a pinhole. You see what I'm talking about? Vision. When your vision is messed up, it's a mess. It's a mess. Whatever it is, if you have trouble with your eyes, it's bad. Because what does it do? It affects everything you do or don't do, doesn't it? It affects us. It affects all of us. You're limited. Whether you want to believe it or not, you're limited. Your vision affects you. Not, not as much in the physical world as it does in the spiritual world. Because, yeah, you can get a dog or a cane or somebody or you can get other tools that will help you. I understand what you're saying. But in the spiritual world, God says if we don't have a vision, if we don't have a future outlook, people perish. You can't depend on other things. You can't depend on other people. You can't depend on tools. All we can depend on is God. We have to have a clear vision of God and who he is and what his program is, and what his plan is, and what his mission is, and, and where he's headed. You remember several years ago, there was a, a book came out, a Bible study and all that, called Experiencing God. Henry Blackaby wrote that study, Experiencing God. And, and I've been through that two or three times, read it, you know, taught it a few times. But the one thing... I couldn't tell you anything about it right now without refreshing myself on it. I couldn't tell you anything about it except one thing that I've never forgot out of that study. He said, find out where God's already doing something and just get involved in it. Don't, don't go looking to try to make a way because then it can just become about self. Just find out where God's already busy doing something and just join in. Just be a part of what God's doing. Because God has a focus. He's got a mission. He's got a vision. He's got a plan. So what's the idea? 
Well, vision is future outlook. We have to know where we're going. Now, I thought this morning about bringing some visual aids. You know, I like to do that kind of stuff. I, I did bring these with me this morning. But I was going to bring some maps. I got some old maps. I got some newer maps. You know, it used to be that if you were going to drive the roads of the United States, you had to go down to the gas station and do what? Buy a map. We don't use them anymore. You ever try to go buy a map in a store? It's a hard thing to do nowadays. Walmart don't even carry them anymore. They don't even carry an atlas. Might be one or two stores that are still left that do, but not very many. Why? Because it's all on the cell phone now, isn't it? It's that thing called GPS, Google Maps. We just punch in some numbers and boom, there it comes. But if we're going to get out on that road and go somewhere, what do we want to know? We want to know where we're going. Not only we don't know where we're going, but we want to know what else. How to get there. Because I can know where I'm going, okay. I'm going to go to Montgomery. Well, there's about four or five ways to get to Montgomery from here, isn't there? I mean, if you just want to get there quick, you jump over here, 459 to 65, and boom, you're there. If you got some time and you just want to spend the day, you drive up here to Talladega, jump on number nine, go down the back road, down by Hatchet Creek, see some beautiful countryside down through there. Some places I'd like to fish. Brother Mike ain't here. Me and him's got to get together on that. But you understand, how are you going to get where you're going? So that's what having vision and, and then your mission, you know, what, what's your vision? How are you going to fulfill that vision? How are you going to get where you're going? Those things are important. And, and in God's business, in God's work, that's the primary thing for a body of believers to put themselves together and call themselves a church is what is God's vision for us? What are we here for? Why did God allow us to come together and be what we call a church, a local assembly? God didn't put Sulphur Springs up on this hill over 100 years ago just to sit up here. And he's not kept it here all these years for it just to sit up here. I had a church member tell me one time, the last church I pastored, he didn't realize what he was saying when he said it. And it didn't hurt my feelings when he said what he said. It was one of them kind of things I wanted to just take. You know them V8 commercials where they walk you upside the head and say, wow, I could have had a I want to just reach over and pop him in the side of the head and say, do you realize what you just said? But here's what he said. He was trying to be complimentary. He said, we got the best kept secret in all of Moody. Talking about our church. He loved his church. He loved the singing. He loved the preaching. He loved the fellowship. He loved the fact that we stood for... He loved everything about the church. But that's he thought, man, we, we, it's all ours. We got it going on. But it's the way he said what he said. Yeah, it's a secret. Who's benefiting from it? What, what good is it doing anybody? It's like you may have the best salt in all the world. You might have traveled to Israel and bought it right at the front gate of the salt mine. But if you don't ever shake it out of that shaker, what good is it going to do you? If you don't put it on your food, you're never going to enjoy it. Just, just sit it up there, 
for a conversation piece. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful salt? I went all the way to Israel and bought that salt right from the salt mine. Well, what good does that do? That's like this. Isn't that a beautiful Bible? Look there. I went all the way. That's Moroccan leather. Came all the way from Morocco. Them poor goats gave their life for that beautiful skin. And look at them pages. Them, them pages, it'll never be cigarettes right there. I'm telling you, know that's the same paper they make cigarettes out of? Bible paper and cigarette paper? Same paper. That's why they won't let them have these kind of Bibles in prisons and stuff. They tear the pages out and get tobacco and roll tobacco in it. But we could have a beautiful, expensive Bible and never read it. Read it and never apply it. You see? You got to have a vision. You, you got to know what you want to do, how you're going to get there. I've got some focus points on how to have a clear vision. Focus points on how to have a clear vision. And, and these don't go in any particular order. I'm going to give them to you one, two, three, but they don't go in this order. It's not like you get this one first and this one. They go together. They, it's almost like a circle. You, you couldn't put one ahead of the other. You can't have one without the other. It's really the way to look at it. But, but here they are, focus points on how to have a clear vision. Number one, you have to have an external focus. You have to have an external focus. God's people today got to get their head out of the sand. We have to see the world around us. We've created in my generation. I'll, I'll take some of the blame and some of the responsibility for it. It started when I was a kid, so I didn't start it, but I've aided and abetted, if you want to say it that way. I didn't start it, but I hadn't done a lot to stop it. But in my generation, we've created what I've called the Christian subculture. We've got good churches, and we've made bigger churches, and we've built family life centers and all these things around our churches and, and our Christian schools and all. And those things are all good, but remember what I said about vision. If ours is not matching up with God's, if our goal is not the same as God's goal, it's not any good, is it? But what we've done is we've created a Christian subculture for us to live comfortably in so that we can disengage ourselves from the filth and the wickedness and the lostness of the world. God said to separate ourselves and not be that way, preacher. He said don't do it. He didn't say not be in it. He said separate yourself in the fact that you no longer do those things. But he didn't say don't go minister to those people that are doing those things. He didn't say don't go rub shoulders with those people that are doing those things. Now, men, I'm not talking about going to Sammy's and passing out tracts after church this afternoon. Y'all got to have some common sense and meet me halfway on what I'm telling you. You understand what I'm saying. We've just created a culture where we just want to come away from the world and put our head in the sand and just talk about God and Jesus all the time over here at the church amongst ourselves. How's that doing anything to win lost people to Jesus? Brother Jerome, if I come over to the, to the mattress store one day and we're just hanging out 
and, and we're talking about Jesus and the two or three, four other people that might work over there and they're there and they go to church and they know about Jesus and we just sit around and talk about Jesus all day. What good's that done for the kingdom of God? We already know all about Jesus. What we need to be doing is talking to people that don't know about him about him. That's what we need to do. It's easy for me and Jerome to talk about Jesus. We both know him. But sometimes you come up on a stranger or somebody you don't know or maybe even somebody you work with and you know they're lost. You get like an old crawfish and start backing up in the corner somewhere. I can't talk to them about Jesus. They won't love me no more. They won't be my friend. They'll think I'm weirdo or crazy. Well, here's the clue. You are. Because Titus said that he saved us that we would be a peculiar and a zealous people. Peculiar means that we're different. Not just different, but it means distinctly different. It means you're, you, I mean, it shows. It's distinct. You're different. And zealous means you get excited. I hadn't met, a, I hadn't met any uh, football fan in this state that's not zealous. Bless God, they ain't said amen in church in 20 years, but they've shouted at every football game they've ever been to. I better stay back over here. I'll get in the flesh. <laughs> but y'all know what I'm talking about. That's what we're supposed to be. That's what salt and light is. So we got to have an external vision. We got to see the world for what it is. We got to get our head out of the sand, get out of our little Christian subculture, get out of our little. Christian circle and see that there's a lost world that's dying and going to hell out there. It's wicked. I mean, it's filthy wicked. You, do you, you realize in, in 2019, we've gotten to the place, and forget all the gender mess. I ain't going to preach that sermon today. It's in there, and I'll preach it one day. But you just forget about all the vileness and the wickedness of that culture. We live in 2019 where we got politicians telling us it's okay to pull a child out of the womb and kill it. That's murder. You, you have a dog that's got a litter of puppies and you let that female dog have about six or eight puppies and, and let her bear them puppies and then you take them six or eight puppies and you smash them in the head with a sledgehammer and let your neighbor find out about it. What do you think is going to happen? By God, you're going to jail and you're going to stay there for a long time if you kill some puppies. But you can bear a human being and they can take it and kill it and you can get up and go to work the next day. Won't nobody say a word. You understand? You got to have an external vision. You got to see we live in a wicked, terrible world. We're not going to change the world. They've been fighting sin ever since the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, the war began. There's been a battle against evil ever since then. We're not going to stamp out sin. Noah couldn't stamp it out in his day. That's why God had him to build a boat. And he sent a big flood and killed everybody but eight people. Sometimes we don't realize when God says something, he means business. He whacked out eight, all the world but eight people and told them to start over again. They did. What did it do? 
continued to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And look where we are now. You know, they was killing babies when Jesus came too. Made a rule to kill all the male babies, didn't they? That's killing babies when Moses had to go get God's people out of the land of Egypt too, wasn't it? Might be a good sign. We're so happy about killing them now. It might be just a good sign the Lord's getting ready to come back. We have to have that external vision. We, we don't have time this morning. We could go to 1 John 2 where the Bible talks about uh, all the things that are in the world and he defines the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And we could talk about all those things. But what does it boil down to? It's simple. What's, what's the wickedness in, in this world made up of? Lust and pride and self-indulgence. Man, there's a lot of Christians live right in that same valley. They're lustful. They want things. They're proud. You know why you can't forgive somebody that wronged you? Because you got pride in your heart. It's not easy, but you don't have a choice in the matter. God said, you, if you're ever going to be right with me, you got to be right with your fellow man. He said, if you come to make peace with me and, and, and you find that your brother's mad at you or you're mad at your brother, he said it in Matthew and he said it in Luke, but he said it two different ways because there's no wiggle room. It don't matter if they're mad at you or you're mad at them. He said, you're responsible to go get it right because they're not. So we are. You see, forgiveness. We don't forgive because we got pride in our heart. So Christians can have those same things, lust, pride, self-indulgence. Man, I got a napkin and a fork and a spoon here. Now we're going to go eat here in a little while. And what are we going to do? The majority of us. We're going to overeat. We're going to self-indulge, aren't we? I'm... I'm, I'm preaching that way so there'll be more for me to eat. <laughs> hey, the Lord said if I've blessed it, eat it. And we're going to ask him to bless it in a little while and we're going to go eat it. But you, you, you see, that's a simple illustration, isn't it? How easy is it for us to get self-indulged? And it's not just about food. It's that way in a lot of areas in our life. We don't want to be discomforted, do we? Let's God let somebody call you about 8.30 at night that's run out of gas and it's cold and raining outside. I done took my shoes off, done put my bed clothes on, it's warm, I'm sitting here with a bucket of popcorn watching a little TV, and you want me to come get you gas and you read them the right. What in the world did you ever run out for to start with? You know what I'm saying? And we say, I'll call AAA for you. <laughs> Why? Self-indulgence. Betty, I'll tell you, you didn't want to run out of gas and call my uh, uncle. We called him Powpaw. You got the gas, but I guarantee you that's the last time you'd ever run out. <laughs> Number one, we have to have an external focus. We got to see the need that's in the world around us. Why? Mark chapter 8, verse 36 tells us that there's not one thing in this world that's more valuable than a human soul. What shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world but lose his own soul? 
But if God puts that value on the soul, then why are we not out trying to win them? Why are we not out trying to influence them? Why are we not taking young Christians and trying to disciple them and help them to grow up in the Lord so that they can reach their peers for Jesus? you got to have an external vision. There's nothing more valuable than the human soul. We can't change the world, but we can influence it one soul at a time. In Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2, tells us that our affection is supposed to be on things above. That doesn't just mean a future outlook of heaven. Our affection on things above means we need to see lost people and we need to invest in them so they'll make it to heaven. That's setting your affection on things above. It's more important that we take people with us than we just live our life for our own enjoyment down here. Because James said it's just a vapor. It's short. It'll be gone in a little while. What's that old thing? I don't remember what they called it. I just know it was on a, a plate or a coffee cup at my great-grandmama's house. It said, uh, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Uh, invest in people and winning souls because what little bit of time we have in this life, that's the only thing that's going to matter in the next life is what we did to get people there. An external focus. An external focus. Turn to Romans chapter number 12 with me real quickly. Romans chapter number 12. Now, I'd probably finish a lot sooner every week if y'all would put a clock up back there. If I knew what time it was, I might not preach so long. Romans chapter number 12. So I can't verify that. I'm not going to take your word for anything. Romans chapter number 12. I'm just going to look at one verse here. Romans chapter 12. Look at verse number 3. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Here's number 2. We've got to have an external focus, but we also have to have an internal focus. An internal focus. If we're going to have a clear vision, we've got to have a clear assessment of who we are. We have to get real with ourselves. Now, I, mean, I, I, you know, I, I want you to feel good about yourself. But I want you to feel good about yourself in the Lord. Because I'm going to tell you, you ain't nothing. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So what does that mean? you just as rotten and wicked a sinner as any else, anybody else out there is. The only difference in you and them is God's grace. The only difference in you and somebody that's sitting on death row for 14 rapes and murders is God's grace. That's the only difference. The only difference. And when we think of ourselves... More highly than we ought to, our vision gets skewed. We, we can't have a clear focus. God said it real plain. You ought not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but think soberly, soberly. A right assessment of who you are. Old Marine, I think I mentioned this here a few weeks ago, uh, Marine Corps preacher, Professor in college, 
He helped me to understand this in Bible college. He said it this way. He said, we're all just zero with the rim knocked off. You think about that. That's all we are. People talk about being lower in the snake's belly. That's pretty low. I mean, to be a zero is nothing already. And then to get the rim knocked off of it, I mean, that's <laughs> pretty bad. You Nothing. And without Christ, that's all we are. It's nothing. And with him, we can be anything and everything. But it's still not us. It's him. I, I'm going to tell you, uh, 40, almost 40 years, two years, it'll be 40 years I've been preaching. And it ain't none of me. Not a bit. What happens is, is you can do something for so long, you can get so comfortable in it that you no longer take it serious. That you know that you just take it for granted. Well, I've been preaching 40 years. I'm comfortable talking in front of people. I know my Bible pretty good. You know, I just stroll in there, throw out three points in the poem, we'll go to the house. Well, who's doing that? Me. What's God doing? Nothing. It's not about me. When I stand here in front of you and say it's not about me, I'm not saying that to get you to like me. I'm not saying that to get you to think, well, he's an awful generous. I'm not saying that for any other reason to let you know it's not about me. It's about him. And if he doesn't do it, it won't be done. I've learned in 40 years of preaching. Without him, you can't do it. You may think you're doing something, but if he's not backing it, it don't have any power to it. It don't have any stickability to it. Think about people you might have led to the Lord. You prayed a prayer with them somewhere. Where are they? Was you just going through the motions? Was you just leading them in some ritualistic prayer? Well, you're a sinner and now you need a Savior and go over here to Romans and look at these two or three verses and pray this prayer and you'll be saved and you'll go to heaven. Amen, let's go home. Where are they? The Bible talks about fruit that what? Remains. There's a lot of people prayed a lot of prayers, shook a lot of hands, and been dunked in a lot of tanks, and they just as lost as they was before they started. Because when we witness to them, we're just witnessing to them in the power of our own flesh, going through religious words, and the Spirit of God's not in it anywhere. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's all about Him. And when we get honest with ourselves, when we realize and when we can have enough humility about us to say, God, there's things in my life that I've done on my own and I've tried to give you credit for them, but I realize it's not you, it's me, and I need it to be you and not me. Your whole world will change. When you swallow that lump of pride and realize it's him. Have a sober assessment of yourself. That's what he says right there. 
in Romans 12. We need to have an internal focus. Write these verses down. We won't turn to them. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, try me, know my ways. You know those verses. Psalm 139. John chapter 3, in verse 30, John said this. My, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, John the Baptist, he said this. He said, He must increase and I must decrease. Every day of our life when we get up in the morning, that's what we ought to say. Lord, you increase and help me to decrease. Help it to be about you and not about me. That's what he wants. He wants to show off in our life. He wants to do wonderful things in our life. But when we make it about us, he can't. We need to have a sober assessment. The last thing uh, that would have to do with that internal focus, Titus chapter 2, we've been preaching through there and we ended up, turn over there, Titus chapter 2, because this is where we're going to kick off the third focus point and then we'll be, uh, be ready to go eat. See, y'all don't understand. There's certain places you got to listen for them, but you got to learn too. There's certain places you got to say, Amen, preacher. And when I say, then we'll go eat, everybody's supposed to say, amen, preacher. <laughs> See, when you do that, I'll get through a whole lot quicker because I feel like you're understanding what I'm saying. You may even not agree with it, but at least it lets me know you're listening and you understand so I can move on to the next thing, you know? So we'll, we'll get, you, get you trained up here. Titus 2. Verse 11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. We talked about this the other night. Verse 12, teaching us. God's grace teaches us. It teaches us. There's some things it teaches us. We're going to go through these things the next time we're in Titus. It teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that goes back to that external focus, doesn't it? ungodliness, the worldliness, all the things. We have to see that stuff that's in the world. But God's grace teaches us we're not to be a part of that stuff. We're, we're to deny ungodliness. We're to deny the lust of things of this world. But we are to live how? Soberly, righteously, and godly. When? Right now. Right now. So we need to look inside of ourselves and say, God, am I living this way? Am I living soberly? Do I, do I look at myself soberly? Am I living righteously? Am I, am I waiting for a certain day when I can just say, okay, God, I'm tired of living for me and now I'm going to live for you? Oh, he said do it now. What good is it going to do to live for Jesus in the millennial kingdom? They're going to do a bit of good because by then we've already been to heaven, been to the marriage supper of the Lamb, Done all that wonderful stuff and we got on them white horses and came back to earth with Jesus. That's not the time to live for him then. It's time to now so we can point other people to him. So I have to have an internal focus. All right? That points us to the last thing. If you read on down in verse 13, the Bible says, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you keep reading verse 14, you'll find that peculiar and that zealous people. So we have to have an external focus. We've got to see the need. Be willing to let the Lord use us to meet the need however he can. 
So we have to have an internal focus because it's not about us. I can't meet the need. I can't solve the world's problems. I can't change the world. I can't stamp out sin. I can't make this church different. I can't make St. Clair County and East Jefferson County a holy and a righteous place. But I'm telling you what, I know the God that can. And if I get myself in the right position with him, he might just use me to spark something that might make a difference in something somewhere. But I got to be willing to get rid of me and let it be him. And then thirdly, we have to have an eternal focus. An eternal focus. Paul wrote to Titus there, he said, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's coming again. He's coming again. Whether you believe it's going to be in your lifetime or not, it doesn't matter. You ought to spend the balance of your life doing whatever you can to point people to him because he's coming again. And he could come today. Turn to Hebrews, just a few pages there if you're in Titus, just a few pages over. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. If you took this verse out of context, it would almost, almost be a very disturbing verse of Scripture. Uh, and, but in the context of it, it's a very comforting verse of Scripture. But I'm not taking it out of context, and I'm not preaching it in context. I'm just using it to prove a point this morning. Look at verse 27. The Bible says this, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Just quite simply, God tells us every man is going to die. We have an appointment with death. He's talking about Jesus here. But we have an appointment with death. And after death comes judgment. For the Christian, we die once. We die to self on this earth. We accept the Lord Jesus Christ. And we put our future in his hands. And you know what? When we, for us, the physical life just ends one day. Do you realize it just ends? It's not death in the sense we think of death. We just change residences. I go from living here in my home with my wife and kids, I go to heaven living with the Lord. When Brother Jerome was talking right before church, he was talking about his aunt. She passed this week. That's what I like talking about Christian people. We're talking about them passing, not dying. You don't go up to somebody and say, oh, I'm sorry for your loss. Well, they're not lost. We know right where they are. They're in heaven. Words matter, people. Think about the words you use. Sorry for your loss. They didn't lose nobody. Don't make yourself sound stupid. That, that's free. That don't cost no extra. We was talking about heaven and, and his aunt passing. Death is it's, it's different for the Christian. We die to self here when we accept Christ. And we give him our life. He's got our eternity secured. It's in heaven. For us, that judgment comes at the judgment seat of Christ. For the lost man, his judgment's going to come at the great white throne judgment. But make no mistake about it. God said... We're all going to die once. And we're all going to stand before God in judgment once. I died and my sin was judged at Calvary. And I'm no, God doesn't see me any longer as the enemy, uh, as a sinner, as a wicked person. He just sees me through Jesus. He sees me through the blood. 
when I go to him and ask for forgiveness of my sins, which I'm supposed to do, even though he's already forgiven all of them, when I go and say, Lord, I did this and I need to ask you forgiveness for it because I want to maintain my fellowship with you. He said, oh, I didn't even see that. All I see on your sheet is that red blood. It's covered all your sins. Thank you. Now we can be in fellowship again because I got it off my chest. See, the problem with you is not that God won't forgive you of your sin. It's just you never take it to him and ask him to forgive you of it. He's already forgiven it. Just go get the load off your chest. Tell him you know what you did was wrong and get it over. I mean, you raised children. I know I'm dodging a rabbit here and there, but this is important stuff. You, you raise children, and, and when they come around, sometimes you know when they've done something wrong, haven't you? I mean, you just tell by how they act. And then when they finally get to that place, whether you, you know, kindly question them and help them along a little bit, or either that old thing of conviction down on the inside of us gets to eating at them, and they finally come and tell you whatever it was they did. You know, I backed into the light pole and dented the fender, or, you know, I did this, or I did whatever. It's almost like you can just see the color come back in them, can't you? The freshness, the stress, and the pressure. Oh, God just wants you to get the load off. He's already forgiven you. Just go to him and own up to it. That could have been under number two, I guess, the internal focus. But he didn't give it to me till just now. So, But we're going to stand before him one day in judgment. So what is that, that, that external, uh, eternal focus? Look at verse uh, 28. He's made the statement, we're going to die. We're going to stand before judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. That's why ours is already taken care of in Christ. And unto them, listen, that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. If you're saved, you ought to be looking for him. It's an evidence of your salvation. If you're not looking for him, I'd be hard-pressed to wonder if you're saved or not. Because why would you want to stay here in this old wicked, sinful world any longer than you have to unless it's just to tell other people about him? Because if it's just to go to the beach once a year and go to the mountains once a year and drink coffee and fellowship and all that other stuff we do, we do all that and we get to heaven. And besides all that, God's going to give us a new heaven and a new earth one day and all the beauty of this one ain't going to be even compared to what he's going to make us. So if you think the beach and the mountains is pretty now, wait till we get a new one. So get an eternal focus. Get a, get a vision of eternity not just yours but other people's we ought to be we to change the sign out front on the road it says the first church of the lookers that's what we ought to be I don't want to be a Baptist no more okay we'll put it on the sign first church of the lookers Titus Paul wrote to Titus and said what look looking we're to look for that blessed hope the Hebrew writer, which I believe was Paul, he wrote it here. He said, unto them that look for him. If you're not looking for him, he's not going to appear. But if you're looking for him, he's going to appear the second time he's coming. You get over into Peter. Peter says that we ought to be 
looking, diligently looking. Second Peter, I think it is, chapter 3, verse 11. Diligently looking or looking diligently. We're to look for him to be coming back. Don't be like the scoffers in the first part of 2 Peter chapter 3. Say, well, people been preaching that for years. He ain't coming back. I've been hearing that my whole life. I'm going to live myself, do what I want to, and enjoy this life. Well, in such an hour you think not. So cometh the Son of Man is what the Bible says. Just when you think you got it all figured out, he's going to show up. You'll be in trouble. Last verse, Hebrews 12. Turn you you're there in 9, look at 12. Chapter 12, verse number 2. He tells us this. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and, it set down, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Now this could be a whole other sermon. I'm not going to preach it this morning. But I'm going to give you the parts that could be the sermon right here. Because we need to have an eternal focus. What, what will help us if we get our eternal focus right? Verse uh, number one, he says something about a great cloud of witnesses. There's a lot of people looking at us. There's a lot of people looking at us. What does a witness do? If, you, if somebody called you a witness, what would you have to do to be a witness? You have to tell what you saw to be a witness, wouldn't you? So there's a lot of people that are going to tell what they see. What do people see in us? Is there enough evidence to convict us of being a Christian? Could the lost world actually take us to court and convict us of being a Christ follower? There's a cloud of witnesses out there. Then he says, let us lay aside every weight. So you got witnesses and you got weights. Sometimes weights in life, they slow us down. They hinder us. They keep us from doing, accomplishing things we ought to. And then in verse number 3, uh, he said, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. What helps us with all three of those things? Looking, looking unto Jesus, knowing he's coming back, knowing where our future is, knowing what our future is, knowing that our future is secure. I'm not talking about a hope so, or maybe so, or want to, got to, need to. I'm talking about knowing. If you know, you're looking. Everybody, I don't care how old you are, everybody knows what happens on the morning of December the 25th, don't they? What are we going to do? We're going to get up and go look. To see if he came. Not Jesus. We're going to see if somebody bought us something. Put us a little something under the tree. Give us a card. Put something in our stocking. To looking. We get excited. I don't care how old you are. A little kid in you still gets excited. I still want one toy for Christmas. I don't care if it's a, a matchbox car from the Dollar Tree. And it's got plastic wheels on it. It don't just need one toy. Because I'm never going to grow up. We, we look with anticipation and excitement for Christmas morning, don't we? We ought to look for Jesus way more 
than we looked for Christmas morning. We ought to be excited about his coming. And if we get excited about his coming, people will see it in us. We're witnessing. We're testifying to them about him. They'll see it in us. It'll take the weights off of us if we're looking for him. They'll just fall right off the side. And we won't be wearied. Why? He said, consider him. Why do we want to consider him? Because there'll be days when we get wearied, when we get tired. But if we have the hope of his coming. I'm working on a message on hope. The Lord's been helping me for about three or four weeks. I'm so excited about it. I just wish he'd let me finish it and preach it about hope. You know, we live in a world that has no hope. You meet people every day that literally, no matter what you think they look like on the outside, inside they feel like they have no hope. And our hope is in the Lord. But there, those three things, witness, waits, wearied. Now look over at verse 15. Looking diligently. See, we're looking unto Jesus. We're looking diligently lest any man fall, of the, uh, fail of the grace of God lest any root of bitterness spring up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. What happens when we don't keep our eternal focus where it ought to be? What did he say right there? If we're not looking diligently, God's grace will slip away from us. We'll forget that everything we are is because of who he is, because of what he did. You see how I said these three are inseparable and they're like a circle and you can't really, one's not higher than the other one. You can't have one without the other. Because when we keep that eternal focus, it then turns us back to our internal focus. See? Why? So that root of bitterness don't spring up. Because what happens when we get bitterness in us? Well, it don't hurt nobody but me, preacher, if I be mad. Well, that's a lie. Because God's word just said it hurts many. It defiles many. Mama used to say this, one bad apple ruined the whole bunch. You put a tomato in your sack of tomatoes, it's got a little old worm in it. And next morning when you get up, you won't have no tomatoes worth eating. Because you know what that worm will do? He'll climb out of there and he'll just go from one tomato to the other tomato just getting a little bite off all of them. They're, they're, they're not gone, are they? They're not terrible, but they're tainted. That old filthy worm been crawling around nibbling on them. And that's what happens when our focus is not right and our vision is not right. Some of you weren't here on Wednesday night, and I'm going to forgive you for that. I'm going to go easy on you today. But I'm going to tell you what, there's a reason the church has business meetings. And I don't want to hear no complaints as long as I'm here serving and trying to help the church from people that don't show up for the business meeting about what gets decided in the business meeting. Because that root of bitterness damages a whole lot. And if you care about the church and the church's business, show up so we can do the church's business. And you can be a part of it then. Church has got to have a vision. 
you got to know why you're here, where you're going, and how you're going to get there. And over the next couple of weeks in Sunday school, that's, that's your goal, is to pray this week and seek the Lord this week and then get together in those small groups and talk about what the Lord has impressed your heart about. What is it a mission, a specific mission? Is it, you know, something local? Is it something far? What is it that God burdens you about? And when everybody does that in them small groups, you come together collectively with all that information, and you know what? Then you can form a vision as a people. I believe this will be where God wants us to go. And then you can develop a plan on how to get where it is that God wants you to go. Because if he doesn't come back, look around. How many young people you see sitting in here? See a lot of white hair in here. There's not a, not a lot of young people in here. And what did the scripture say? Where there is no vision, what happens? People perish. And when a church doesn't have a vision, it only takes one generation for it to die. It's not reproducing itself. It'll die. And God didn't leave it here this long to fail so to understand what these three things mean come to class each week prepared to discuss what you feel like that God would have you to do or, or, or your part in what he wants the church to be because there's a lost world out there and he's given us the opportunity to go out there and win it to him you know it's amazing it's still it's amazing that this church this little big church does more of them shoeboxes than any other church. Is it in the whole state? Where is she? She's not here, is she? Is it the whole state or is it just this, this district? Well, bless God, who's doing the most in the state? We're going to whoop them next year. How many are they doing? I'm telling you, all I'm, I'm, I don't want to be second place to nobody. We're going to find out who's got the most. And we're going to whoop them. Why? Is it about being number one? No, but that's just the way we challenge ourselves. Because every one of them shoeboxes is an opportunity to reach somebody with the gospel. That's the vision. No matter what the vision is, the end result has got to be reaching people with the gospel. And if it means packing 15,000 shoeboxes, let's pack 15,000 of them. I've lost count. Y'all know, I, I'm trying to find a place where we can stop and go eat. Uh, I'm about there. Y'all are learning. Y'all are learning. Amen. See how easy that was? Amen. Y'all know I do the disaster and we pack the boxes, the food boxes that we give away. The last time the lady that takes care of our little John and Romans that go in those boxes. Not a one of them goes out without that in it. I was asking, I said, how many of those have y'all printed and sent to us? Because we can't keep a count of how many boxes that we, you know, we didn't count boxes to start with. And uh, almost 50,000, almost 50,000 copies of John and Romans been packed in those little boxes. And somebody, their whole world has come undone. And all it is is a little box with some canned food and a bottle of water in it. But it's got Jesus in it. 
just in the last four or five years, almost 50,000. Man can't do that. I can't do that. But God can. And God can do so much from this little hill if God's people will just get a vision and work towards it and let him show himself mighty in who you are. It would be a miracle what God will do right here off the top of this little hill. Let's bow our heads. Father, Lord, you know the hearts of your people this morning. Lord, it's not a message where we come confess our sins or, Lord, we need to be saved. Lord, it's just a message to to understand that you have a mission. You have a plan. You said that you are not willing that any should perish. God, we know lost people, they're going to die and they're going to go to hell. But God, that's not your will. Your vision is that they should come to repentance. God, Paul said, how can they hear without a preacher? God, all of us are little preachers. All of us preach and teach in our own way. And God, I pray that you'd help us as a corporate body, as a group of believers that come here together. Lord, would you, over the next few days and weeks, God, would you give us a clear vision of what you want for this group of people? And for this church, God, help us to put that together. And God, help us to develop a plan that will help us to accomplish the vision that you've given us. Lord, that's what we're here for this morning. That's what your words taught us, that there is a way. So help us to take these focus points and use them to develop a vision that you would have for this group of people. God, whatever you do, we'll stand in awe of who you are. And we'll give you praise for what you do. Now, God, I thank you this morning for all the people that have prepared uh, parts of this meal that we're about to go partake of. Lord, somebody might have bought it and somebody else might have cooked it. And Lord, somebody else might have delivered it. Whatever it is, God, would you just bless the hands and those that have prepared it and provided for it. Lord, I pray this morning you just bless it to our body. God, give us strength. I pray that, Lord, as we eat, we'll have a good time of fellowship. And then, Lord, we'll be able to, uh, to have uh, time of games or whatever it is, come back over, sing, uh, what, whatever it is, Lord, that you have planned for this afternoon for us. God, would you just bless us in it and help us to enjoy the camaraderie and the fellowship that you give us as believers. And be thankful, God, for how you've blessed us so much. And we'll then in turn give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now don't wait to eat. We've already blessed it. So as soon as the ladies say it's okay, get in line and go. Don't yes, ma'am. Okay. If you want to help out with the angel tree, it's out front. And then two, uh, Jennifer's already slipped down there, I guess. But you can ask her. I think they still need some help uh, with their uh, food boxes for the families for Thanksgiving dinner. So if you want to do something like that on a personal level or whatever, just check with her and she can tell you what all it is that they need there uh, at the mission. All right. Thank you for being patient with me this morning. Hope the Lord helps you a little bit. He'll help you a lot more if you go get a plate.
Brother Don. 